Let us come before the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, you are the, the sovereign God. You are every bit as sovereign in this moment as you were six months ago. We thank you that your word is still living and active and is at work in the lives of your people. It still contains everything to make people wise to salvation and to make them complete and equipped for every good work. And as we observe today how Paul stood with confidence in light of great times of distress and trouble, may it encourage our souls, but Lord, may it also cause us to live with that same confidence and hope that is in Christ. We ask in his precious name. Amen. I've never done jury duty ever in my life. And every time I think of the concept of jury duty, I can tell you, if I'm honest, what comes to my mind is, how long is that going to take? How much of an inconvenience is that going to be? And so I've kind of dreaded the idea of getting that leather, anything that looks like it's coming from a government thing, it's in the mail, I think, is this going to be it? Now, I've received that letter twice. And as much as I really don't like the idea of getting that letter, I wasn't apprehensive at all. I had no fear whatsoever. The reason why I had no concern, no nerves about getting that letter was that both times I received it, I was doing voluntary ministry inside a prison during that time, which rendered me ineligible. So I knew the moment I got it that I can't do it because it doesn't really look good to be on the jury to convict someone to then meet them later on in the prison setting. I had a hope that meant I didn't need to fear, didn't need to worry. Today in our passage, Paul speaks about the hope that he has that gives him great confidence, that compels him forwards even in the middle of such great distress. And if you are a Christian... If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, his hope is your hope. Your situation might not be before trials, people saying they they want to have you killed for the things that you're saying. But even in the middle of this COVID-19 situation, his hope and confidence is your hope and confidence. And if you're not presently following Jesus, this hope can be your hope from this day on forevermore. Over three years we've been going through the book of Acts and we started this year in chapter 21 verse 17. We've had two sermons already. In both of them, Paul is facing great hostility. Paul had previously been doing a great mission work out amongst the Gentile people. That's those who are not Jewish. Thousands upon thousands had come to place their trust in Jesus Christ to come know that wonderful hope. As he comes back to Jerusalem, the Jerusalem Christian leaders, they rejoice alongside with Paul. But from the moment Paul has arrived, he's not a popular kid. There's been rumours spreading around that Paul by nature is hostile or is an enemy to the Jews to the people, to their customs, to their temple. And in both times, they have sought to kill Paul. 
for the things that he's doing, for the things that he has said. And much to our surprise, it's the Roman authorities who have got no interest in Judaism or Christianity who have protected Paul to this point in time. The claims that have mainly been made is Paul has betrayed us Jews. He's an enemy. He's an enemy of the people, of the customs, of the temple. But what we've seen in the last couple of weeks, Paul was a man of immense respect for all three of those. He spoke and addressed the crowd, fathers and brothers, as he does before the Jewish council today, addressing them as brothers. He partook of the customs. He purified himself so that he might not defile the temple. But the Roman authorities would like to see a bit more peace and comfort in Jerusalem. They don't know exactly what's going on, but they want to sort it out. I think they were hoping that would happen last week, but they couldn't get, as in yesterday in the events of things, but last week's sermon, they couldn't get a cohesive case from the crowds. You need to remember, Paul's speech was in a language the Romans didn't understand. But one thing I think is abundantly clear to them is that something to do with Jewish teaching, practices, customs, is the scores of the uproar. So who better to ask than to get the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin? And when I say ask, you'll see there verse 13, they commanded them to come and meet which I don't think they would have needed a great deal of persuading and they would have been quite happy to bear witness against Paul. So today we are looking at a life that has lived in good hope, sorry, good conscience before God, the central case of the hope of the resurrection, the Lord of encouragement, and what does it look like to have that hope for today? I remember my job interview at Mafra Community Church. It was me on one chair, surrounded by 10 people asking questions. That was quite intimidating, especially for your first church job interview. Sarah was good friends with one of the elders, and they'd they'd nicked off, they'd got out of there. She managed to avoid that situation. But here is Paul before 70 Jewish leaders to give an account. And he doesn't look the slightest bit intimidated. It says, verse 1, looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Now, in my schooling years, I had a number of visits to the principal that were more than social visits. And most of those visits, eye contact was not a common thing. When you feel guilty, eye contact gets avoided and the the story changes a little bit. But Paul didn't have any degree of guilt. He could look them in the eye and say, from the day I was born right up till now, I have good conscience about the way I've lived my life before God. Meaning all of his prior days as a Jew, including the time which he persecuted Christians, he did so with good conscience, believing that he was honestly doing the right thing before God. But even when Paul turned from persecuting Jesus to serving Jesus, right up until this day, Paul says, 
every step along the way, I have acted in a way which I believe is the right thing to do before God and I have no guilt in my conscience in how I've served him whatsoever. Up until Paul's encounter with Jesus, the Sanhedrin would have probably agreed. They would have loved all the things that he was doing up until that point in time. But for him to say, still, even now he has good conscience before God, they've got some serious concerns. Not only is he proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Messiah, risen from the dead, but proclaiming that this hope is available to Gentiles without needing to become Jews first, to come on level footing, even ground, children of God by faith in Jesus. And in the speech that he'd given the day before, he went that step further and says, this mission which I'm doing is a mission given by Jesus Christ himself. This is the will of God, that the gospel would go to all people. Now that got a little bit too much for the high priest. And in good priestly conduct, he commands that someone punch Paul in the mouth. Now persecution and violence for being a follower of Jesus is not a new thing. We've seen it throughout the book of Acts. Even Jesus did not, was not treated well, was regularly persecuted. But as Peter records of Christ, for to you... This you've been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving as an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sins, neither was sin, deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Paul says similar words about his own ministry in 1 Corinthians 4. We labour, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still, like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. It's what Peter says of Christ. is what Paul says of himself. Where does Paul's response here fit in light to what Christ has done and Paul's own advice? Paul's response was, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Now, I'm never going to be the sort of person that says, Paul's an apostle, therefore he he is sinless, he doesn't make mistakes. Paul is very clear that he is a sinner, he struggles with sin. But what we're looking at here is, is this particular response out of line with keeping of a follower of Jesus Christ. The language of a whitewashed wall is used in Ezekiel 13, where it's spoken of something which looks stable, but is soon to be collapsing. Some believe that Paul might be saying to the Jews and the Jewish leaders that your position is about to come crumbling down, but I don't think that's what he's saying. I think rather Paul's statement is more in line with the statement that Jesus himself made to religious leaders, saying, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. 
So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. He says, you know, you've got all the appearances externally of being righteous and godly. But here the high priest, as actually, the people who are called to uphold the law, have acted in a way in complete viol- violation of the law by ordering Paul to be struck. Paul wasn't cursing them. He wasn't saying, may God strike you. He was saying, God will strike you. You'll see it a number of times throughout the Old Testament that the, the leaders of the Jewish people were to uphold the law and to judge with justice. And God spoke very clearly. There would be consequences if they did not. So Paul speaks perfectly in line with what God has already said. But then he's asked the question, is that a way to speak to the high priest? And his response, I imagine when you heard that read, you thought, you serious, Paul? Paul says, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of the ruler of your people. Now, one thing's definitely clear in this verse that Paul understands that the scriptures say, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But where we've got some serious questions is, how can Paul say he didn't know he was the high priest when in a speech he'd given the day before, he said, you can ask all of the councils, you can ask the high priest about these things which I have done. Now he says he doesn't know that he was the high priest. Well, there's two possible choices here. One is saying that is almost discrediting this person as being a high priest because he hasn't acted as one. Like if he really was the high priest, surely he wouldn't act like this. Or secondly, amongst the 70 people who are part of this ruling council, Paul didn't know which particular one spoke these words. So it either means Paul's got no regrets about what he said because the high priest has discredited himself, disqualified from his role by the way in which he acts, or he has actually sincerely apologised because of an error on his part as to who he was speaking to. We're not going to resolve that problem because it's not the central focus. They are gathered here to say, what is it about Paul? What is it about what he says, about what he does, that's causing all of this uproar? is when we get to the heart of the case the hope of the resurrection now there's many theories about Paul's response to the high priest and others will look at these verses and think is Paul doing a bit of a shifty here is he just like slying his way out of the consequences is he trying to get out of the trial by causing a rift between the rulers who are there because it does open saying Paul knowing that they were Pharisees and Sadducees who were known to have disagreements about things, then presents his central case as something that is polarising amongst those two groups. The Sadducees famously were opposed to the idea of there being a bodily resurrection. They were opposed to miracles. They were opposed to the idea of angels or God communicating directly to people. Is a Jewish 
written book called the Mishnah, which is a written record of some of their oral traditions. And to give you a bit of an idea of how this was understood, let's read this one small section which says this. And these are the ones who will have no portion in the world to come. He who says the resurrection of the dead is a teaching which does not derive from the Torah. So from their point of view, those who say that the that there will be a resurrection of the dead does not exist in the Old Testament, will not exist in the life to come, they say. It's not a side issue. It's not like a peripheral things of, oh, you can have a, will, there'll be a resurrection, but this group will say there's not. It is a central hope that is presented in the Old Testament. Let's think about it. If this life is all there is, why would there be such stringent guidelines by which you could make yourself right with God? Why would it matter whether or not you were right with God? Look at Daniel chapter 12. It speaks very clearly of a hope beyond death, of a future bodily resurrection of all people. Now here as Paul is speaking about a resurrection, he's not specifically speaking about Jesus. He's talking about a general bodily resurrection. But as we'll see later as we look at 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus' resurrection is the key and is the premise upon which the bodily resurrection stands upon. I think you're actually going too far to say that Paul was just manipulating the situation to get out of a trial. Because when you look through the rest of the book of Acts, Paul's central focus is the resurrection, even when it's not an issue of tension. Matter of fact, all of the big speeches throughout the book of Acts, you'll see far more emphasis given to the resurrection than, than Jesus Christ's death on the cross. But as these two parties have a good old bicker about it, the Pharisees come to a surprising conclusion, saying, we find nothing wrong in this man, what if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? Now, Paul has put forward himself saying, I'm a Pharisee, being born of a Pharisee. Not saying that he's still exactly like one, but in terms of this issue, he's, that's his background and that's what he still holds to regarding the resurrection. And not only do they support him, they actually for a moment are sympathetic. What if God actually, he was telling the truth, what actually God did say I want you to be my appointed means, instrument to take the gospel to the Gentiles. What if he did say, I want my gospel to go out to all people? The tides have turned a little bit. Now it's the Pharisees who are the cause of the disruption. People want Paul dead again. And for the third time, it's the Roman authorities who protect Paul and bring him into the barracks. Now, I don't know how tough your week's been. I don't know how stressful you find the setting that we're in at the moment. But I think it's pretty fair to say that it's nothing compared to what Paul... I don't think any of us are standing in a position where we believe our life is going to be taken by people violently in front of us. Yet Paul, as we read the account, doesn't look remotely stressed at all, does he? It's like this hope of the resurrection is such a certain hope that even facing impending death doesn't faze him in the least. 
For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. That's something that Paul says. But when we speak about a hope of the resurrection, we mean talking about something you look forward to with confident expectation. We don't think of hope in a biblical sense the way in which we use it today. Paul is not speaking about the hope of the resurrection like the hope we'll get toilet paper when we go down to the shops, which means that we don't think we will, but it'd be really great if we do. But as confident as he was, we know our human nature. We have moments when things get tough, we start to doubt. We start to wonder where God is. If he was even slightly inclined that way, he didn't need to. I'm not the least bit surprised that one of Jesus' final things that he said to his followers was, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. He knew things were going to get tough. He knew things were going to get messy. And one of his parting last words is, Behold, I am with you till the end of the age. Because remember when Jesus started talking about how we must depart and go back to the Father? The disciples started to panic. How can, how can, we, how can we go on? That's when Jesus started to tell them, it's important that I go. Then I'll send the, the helper who will be with you forever, the promised Holy Spirit. Which is true for Paul. It's true for every single one of us. If we are a follower of Christ. But sometimes God is also so gracious to give a more tangible reminder of what we already know in our heads. For Paul on this occasion, the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. He had more than just a reminder that God was with him. But he had a reminder of God is on his side, that his mission and his message God is fully behind it. It's the same Lord who's with us, the same Lord who's fully behind that mission that his gospel would be held out to a world who are desperate for hope. So what about today? It's all well and good to hear about what Paul spoke of as being the, the hope of the national Israel or the hope for Christians. But Jesus' death and resurrection is not just the hope for Jews. It's not just the hope for Christians. It is the hope for the entirety of the world, many of which are presently in panic. The same world that right now has fear, anxiety and panic is the same world that my heart, that your heart grieves and breaks that they might have a confidence in that same hope that you and I have. This is how Paul speaks of that hope of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then even Christ, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. 
If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be most pitied. Now he's presented that from the perspective of this is what it looks like if Christ has not been raised. It's like we are pathetic as Christians if Christ has not been raised. We shouldn't even bother coming here in this numbers. We shouldn't be anybody here. But Jesus Christ's resurrection is not only where the biblical perspective points to as reality, that's where the evidence of historical evidence points to as well. It is a sure and certain hope. Therefore, if Christ is raised and he is raised, there will be a resurrection for all. And because Christ is raised, our preaching is vital and helpful. Because Christ is raised, faith is worthwhile and meaningful. Because Christ is raised, we can be freed from our sins. We can have peace with God. Because Christ is raised, we can have a hope now and for eternity. And that we have a hope that we would be the most envied amongst all people. Isn't that a hope that our world needs to hear? Now, I'm not the sort of person who's in the bracket for a high risk with regards to coronavirus. But you know what? Even if I was, I don't have a single thing to fear. Worst case scenario, I could die, unlikely, but I could. What would be the outcome? The outcome is I would go to be with Jesus. I would never experience any of the pain or hurt or the brokenness of this world ever again. I'd experience the perfect blessings of God forevermore. Never experience sickness, death, nothing but joy in the presence of the giver of all good gifts. And if you are a Christian, that is the exact same hope that you have. Yet we live amongst the people who don't have that hope, who have not heard of that hope. Above all, we want God to be glorified in everything, including the present COVID-19 situation. Brothers and sisters, you have a hope this world needs. That the God who has made everything, who is worthy of all honour, who's given us every good gift, who's given us our life, that we have turned our back upon. That's a greater sickness than COVID-19. You know what the death rate, the consequences for rebellion against God is? 100%. And all of us were born with that sickness. Yet our God is a loving God and a merciful and a gracious God whose son Jesus Christ entered into the struggle of this world for the very set purpose that he might lay down his life as a punishment for sin, not for sins he committed, but for ours in our place. And as we turn from our sin and place a faith in his death is our death. We have peace with God 
and life eternal. This world has a feeling of darkness at this moment. The God who spoke light into darkness has shone in your hearts. This is a time when the church should shine brightly to a world that has no hope. Remember when Jesus made made a little summary statement? Love God, love your neighbour. May we excel in both. As people see us clinging unwaveringly to a God, may they hear of our unfailing hope, may give occasion for us to give account of that hope. That might begin as a discussion whether it's a letterbox drops with those cards that people are using to say, if you're self-isolating, I can help with getting you some things from the shops, picking up your medication, any of those things. That might start in that way and it might lead to conversations that lead to eternal hope for those people. Life is going to be differently for quite some time. But you know, in light of all of the uncertainty of the things of this world that are temporal, the things which are most important are solidly unchanged. God is still sovereign over all. He has still called us to love him, to love one another. And the gospel still is the power of God for salvation. We have a sure and certain anchor for the soul and that hope is not just for us to hoard like toilet paper. It is a hope to be shared. Heavenly Father, we live in uncertain and difficult times but we have a certainty in you. We have no reason to panic or to fear But Lord, may this be a time when your church shines bright. When we excel in our faith and our love towards you and express that deeply in our love towards those who you have placed in our midst. Lord, may you be glorified in all of this for the sake of your name. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.